Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Yeah, thank you, team. Brian, never ceases to amaze me how God orchestrates things, orchestrates events, uh, events of the week or events even in the early part of the service to just come right alongside and dovetail with what he's wanting to proclaim from the truth. The topic this morning really, if I was kind of to sum it up in a statement, it's really all about the mercy of God, the incredible magnified mercy of God. And we just saw an example of that. God was merciful to us in our electronic plight there. We didn't have to listen to Brian sing. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Altar call. No, I'm just kidding. Romans chapter 11. Please open there and put your finger there. Let me begin just with a statement of deep conviction. I hold the deep conviction in the verbal inspiration that of the Word of God, that this book that I'm holding in my hands, that the words of this book that I am holding in my hands, as written by the 40-some authors that contributed to this, that they wrote the very words of God. I hold that deep conviction. We as elders here at Cornerstone Church hold that deep conviction. Here's what that means. That means that the very precise words that Paul penned in this letter to the church at Rome is more than the words of Paul. They are the very words of God. They were God's words to Paul, and they are God's words to us. I hold that deep conviction. So how should we then look at the very words of God? Here's a short little list. We should and we must look prayerfully and thankfully and closely and intently and reverently and with anticipation and with predetermined obedience. That's how we should look. God inspired Paul to use the words that he used to communicate a very specific set of truths that he wanted to communicate. And what God is saying here in the verses that we're going to look at can only be fully understood or accurately understood as you understand what God has been saying in the words that precede this. We're right in the middle of a development of thought, of an ongoing proving argument that Paul is making. And so it's imperative that we understand what God has been saying so that we can understand what God is saying. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I am going to basically talk to you, if I have the time, about three things this morning, the what, the so what, and the now what. If you've been here for very long, you've heard me say that before. The majority of the messages that I preach, whether I say it explicitly or not, somehow come into that outline, the what, the so what, and the now what. And here's what that means. The what is, what did God say? That's first order of business. When we open up the Word of God, what we need to be asking 
and looking for is what did God say? He used specific words to communicate some specific truth. So we need to look at those words and to see what God said, the what. Here's the so what. What did God mean? With the things that God said, the what, what did God mean, the so what? There's a reason that he communicated with those words. He wanted us to not only hear what he was saying, but to come to the conclusions or the understandings of truth that he wanted us to see. So the what, what did God say? The so what, what did God mean by what God said? And the now what? What must I do? based upon what God said and what God meant. What must I do? The now what? The what, the so what, and the now what? So we need to begin with the what. And in order to understand the what, what did God say? We need to understand what God has been saying. So here is a quick summary. Romans 9 10 and 11, three chapters form a unit within the letter. And these three chapters are a grand picture that God is painting here of the past 4,000 years of human history, about 2,000 years up until the time that Paul wrote it and another 2,000 years since that time, this incredible unfolding view of the work and the will of God unfolding related to human history. Now, just think about that statement for a moment. If these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are this grand summary of God's work, specifically God's saving work or his redemptive work within human history from 4,000 years in the past all the way up to the present with some glimpses into the ultimate plan for human history in the end, if that's really what these three chapters are about, then can you understand how critical these three chapters are for us? I mean, if that's the subject matter, it should cause us to be fully attentive and on the edge of our seat, longing to hear about what God's great sweeping human drama of salvation history is all about. Incredible things must be in here about the person of God. So I would say, because that is what these three chapters are about, that there are at least two convictions that we should come with related specifically to these three chapters, and the first is what I've already said, we should see them as critically important. We shouldn't ignore them because they're deep and difficult. We shouldn't write them out of our Bible. We should focus on them and give them the import that they are due. That's why we have been in them for quite a period of time looking closely phrase by phrase through them. Here's the second conviction we should expect there to be difficult things to understand. Well, why do you say that, Brad? Because the subject matter should dictate that to us. What we're talking about here is the sovereign work of the eternal God over the past 4,000 years of human history and into an undetermined, undisclosed period of time in the rest of human history up to a culmination, a destiny. We're talking about an eternal plan from an infinite 
God regarding his sovereign purposes. Should we have a hard time understanding that? I say, yes, finite, frail, limited Brad should expect to come to these three chapters and encounter some stuff bigger than Brad. We should expect that if that's what these chapters are about. And in fact, they are. What we should expect is that our minds will be boggled and it'll outdistance our intellect and it'll outstrip our reasoning capacity. And in fact, what we have seen is that has happened over and over again. But here is the response. I think the appropriate human response before God and His Word. I think the appropriate response response is to make sure that it is settled in our heart so that our mind is ready to embrace whatever it is that God says in His Word, even if it outreaches our intellectual limits, even if it is bigger than our mind can grasp, even if it is deeper than our thoughts can go, we should come to these three chapters with the conclusion in our heart and in our mind that God, whatever you want to say here, you say to me, and even if my mind cannot fully reach it in comprehension, my faith can embrace it in conviction. Does that make sense? I mean, it just seems so practical and logical to me that in light of the subject matter of these chapters that we should believe that's what we're going to encounter. And when we encounter it, we should say, oh, that makes sense. This is bigger than me. This is God's eternal purposes and divine, sovereign, infinite work a purpose of election from eternity past, my mind isn't going to be able to reach there. And into eternity future, my mind isn't going to be able to reach there. What we are learning about is some of the highest and the deepest truths about God. Why would we expect anything else except a mind-boggling intellectually stretching, faith-requiring understanding. You see, the greater the truth about God, the purer, the higher, the humbler, the more passionately our hearts should well up in worship. I mean, does this make logical sense to you? The more we learn about the great deep truths of God, what do you think God wants us to do in learning those? He wants our appreciation and wonder and worship of Him to grow and to expand. Folks, that's what's going to be happening if you're a follower of Jesus or become one some point in the future for all of eternity. What's going to be happening is that you with your expanded capacities are going to be growing in an ever-increasing, ever more awe-inspiring realization of the glory and the majesty and the infinity of God. And so what should be happening here is that as we learn the deeper and the deeper truths of God, the higher truths of God, it should cause that to take place in our lives. So the subject of these three chapters is God. The object of these three chapters the nation of the Jews and all other nations, the Gentiles, and how God works among them throughout history. Subject God, object Jews and Gentiles. The goal of these three chapters is to prove that God is a God who is faithful to his promises. Because the chapters open up, Romans chapter 9 
with Paul saying this in the sixth verse. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul says, God is true to his word, even though it doesn't look like it. As Paul looked around, it didn't look like God was being true. I'll tell you why in a minute. But Paul's statement was, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then what he did from Romans 9, 6 through the rest of the three chapters is he set out to powerfully prove the truth of that statement. That's the goal. And then the purpose. The purpose of these three chapters is to, listen to this carefully, the purpose of these three chapters is to cause you and me to have some shock and awe. To have some shock and awe over God. The purpose of these three chapters is to silence you and to silence me in the wonder of worship. The purpose is to cause us to hit our knees in speechless adoration until we are undone by the majesty of God's mercy. That's the purpose of these three chapters. I know that because that is exactly how Paul ended these three chapters. He made the summary statement that we're going to look at today in verses 30, 31, and 32 of chapter 11, a statement about the incredible mercy of God, and then he spent the next several statements just in this wonder of worship over the majesty of the mercy of God and how it transcends the ability to describe or to understand or to search out fully, truly God in his ways of mercy is inscrutable. That's what Paul said. That was his exclamation. That was his culminating shout of praise as he concluded these three chapters. So the purpose is that you and I would have some shock and awe over the majesty of the mercy of God over our lives. But there is a dilemma. There's a problem that has to be answered in order for us to come to that shock and awe in order for us to be overwhelmed and undone by the majesty of his mercy. And here's the problem. Here's the dilemma. God made a promise to the Jews in there in Paul's day. In vast number, they're rejected by God. So the question that had to be answered the question that begs an answer for us is, are all the promises of God true? How about Romans chapter 8? All of the incredible promises in every single verse of that chapter where Paul proves over and over and over again how every follower of Jesus Christ is going to have a glory in the future that... It, is indescribable, that is guaranteed that everything in this life works for the good of those who love God. Is God really faithful to that? Case in point, he made promises to the Jews. Is he faithful to those? And so what Paul spent three chapters doing is he put the Jews as a test case in front of us with his pen to say, yes, in fact, God is faithful to his promises and he uses the Jews to prove it. Even though they had it in a wholesale way, rejected him. And what Paul says as he develops these three chapters and actually comes to the end of the 11th chapter that we looked at 
previous two weeks ago. It says in Romans chapter 11, verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them, the Jews, when I take away their sins. You know what he is referring to there? He's referring to this great revival among the Jews that's going to happen at some point in the future after the full number of the Gentiles comes in. There's going to be a revival. And what is going to happen is that Jesus Christ is going to banish their ungodliness from them, and he's going to take away the sins of the nation of Israel. And what did Paul write that that would be? And this will be my covenant with them, with the Jews, when I take away their sin. In other words, God is going to fully and completely fulfill the covenant that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants of the Jews down through history that were a part of the remnant and all of the end nation that will be saved in mass. The way God's going to fulfill his covenant with them is when he takes away their sin. That great culminating revival is going to be the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Back to Romans chapter 9 verse 6. God's word has not failed. It will fully be completed. Every promise he made to the Jews will be completed when he comes And he takes away their sin in the end at this massive revival among the Jewish people. So that's what God has been saying in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now today, what is God saying today in verses 30, 31, and 32? First thing is the what. What did God say? Romans eleven thirty to 32. For just as you, referring to the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, so they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I want to see, I want you to see two things that God does here in these verses. In verses 31 and 32, he makes a sweeping statement, a summary statement of human history, and then in verse 32, he draws a conclusion from that summary statement by giving a great propositional truth. So I want to look at those in answer to the question, what did God say? First of all, what did God say in verses 31 and 32? He gave us a summary statement of human history. Let me show it to you. The first thing that God talked about was Gentile disobedience. Look at it again, verse 30. For just as you, the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God. Stop there. Here is his first summary statement of human history. It is a statement that encompasses at least 2,000 years of human history. You see, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, God came to Abram, later called Abraham, and he said, Abraham, or Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. That was the beginning of the Jewish people. That was a Biblical demarcation when that nation began. So if we start right there and say every other 
people group besides Abraham and the Jews that would come from him. All the rest of them then are non-Jews, they're Gentiles. And so from that period of time when that demarcation was made in human history, from that period of time, Genesis chapter 12, all the way up to the time of Jesus Christ, it was approximately 2,000 years. And what the Bible calls that time, what Paul is referring to it as here, was a time of Gentile disobedience. And here is how it unfolded. God came to Abram in Genesis 12 and he began this covenant with him. And then God started working almost exclusively with Abraham and his descendants. And the recorded history that we have is God's dealings with this growing Jewish nation. And what he does is he gives covenants to them and promises to them. And then he gives the law to them and he establishes a priesthood and a sacrificial system. And then the Monarchy comes, and then a temple is built, and that encompasses this long period of Jewish history. But while that is happening, what's happening among the Gentiles? God is leaving them to their own sinful devices. He is letting them go in the pursuit of their sin and their rebellion. And what happens is they go to deeper and deeper levels of sin because God is not working on them and with them as a whole, as a na- or as nations. He is letting them go their way. That period of time is called the time of Gentile disobedience. They were going their own sinful way according to their very nature. Objects of God's wrath, agents of disobedience and rebellion. Gentile disobedience. First summary statement that God gives us here of human history is a period of time beginning back in Genesis 12, at least a time of Gentile disobedience. Then there is a second summary statement about human history. Let me read verse 30 again for you. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, Whose disobedience is referring to there at the end of verse 30? Jews' disobedience. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient. So at the end of 30 and the beginning of 31, Paul is writing about now Jewish disobedience. And what I want you to see is if you take this chronologically, Please try to stick with me here. If you take this as it unfolded in history, not as it unfolds in this verse, that what you have after the period of Gentile disobedience is this second period of human history called the period of Jewish disobedience. Look closely again at verse 30. For just as you were at one time Gentiles disobedient, but now have received mercy, that's a new era. That's Gentile mercy. That's God giving his mercy to Gentiles. But that mercy to Gentiles is because of, end of verse 30, Jewish disobedience. So here's what it means chronologically. Before God gave mercy to the Gentiles, the Jews were disobedient. And it was because of the Jews' disobedience that the Gentiles received mercy. So if we take this chronologically, we have Gentile disobedience, at least for those 2,000 years. And then there comes a period or a time of Jewish disobedience. 
And what is he talking about there? This Jewish disobedience is referring to what he's been talking about all through these three chapters, and it's this, the Jews rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah sent by God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. They rejected him, they hated him, and so they aggressively opposed him and worked toward his destruction. And because they rejected him, God rejected them. Because they were disobedient to God, that's when the period of Jewish disobedience began with the nation as a whole then God rejected them. And what we saw studying through the 11th chapter of Romans is that God, because they rejected Christ, God rejected them and hardened them. He judicially hardened them in their sin. He gave them over to the power of their sin. And that hardening of God is so effective that that disobedient period of the Jews has been going on for 2,000 years. It started at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, their rejection of him, and Paul was writing about it in his day, a few decades removed from that moment, but here we are 2,000 years removed, and that period of Jewish disobedience continues to this day where they're still under the hardening of God because of their rejection of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. So period number one, Gentile disobedience, 2,000 years, and then the Jewish disobedience begins at the rejection of Christ. It has continued for 2,000 years and will continue in the future, Paul writes in verse 25 and 26 of chapter 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. He doesn't give us any indication how long that's going to be, except to say that here is when there is going to be a radical transformation among the Jews. It's when the full number of the Gentiles have come in. In other words, when every Gentile that God has intended to save has elected unto salvation and ends up saving in a moment in time, only when all of those have been saved is that period of Jewish disobedience, the hardening of God going to end, and then a revival break out, and the nation as a whole is going to come sweeping in to the church. They're going to recognize their Savior and trust in Christ. When, we don't know, but that will be the events surrounding that great revival. And so... Here's what we have then in statement number three in verse 30. But now the Gentiles have received mercy. There's the third summary statement of history. You have the Gentile disobedience, 2,000 years, and then the Jewish disobedience started at the crucifixion of Jesus has been going on 2,000 years. But then Paul says there's another reality of human history, and that is because of the Jewish disobedience, then there is an opening up of the gospel to the Gentiles and they begin to be saved by God in great numbers. Just read the story of the first church 2,000 years ago and you'll read about that happening. Peter preached the first sermon and the church went from 120 to 3,000. Two chapters later, there's 5,000 men in the church and then it explodes and goes beyond Jerusalem and impacts the world of that day until some 300 years later, the entire Roman nation is considered a Christian nation. Here's the point. The disobedience of the Jew ushered in the third aspect or summary statement or period of human history, the Gentiles receiving the mercy of God. And that period continues today. 
continues all over the world today as God is saving thousands upon thousands of Gentiles. This is a period under the hardening of the Jew when the gospel is going out in mighty force among the Gentile nations of the world. This is our story. This story that we're reading about here is our history. We're a part of this history. It's relevant to us. We're learning about God's great, grand outworking of salvation throughout all of human history. And then there's going to be a fourth segment of human history, and that is when God gives his mercy to the Jews. You see, the statement in verse 31 is that that in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, the Jews, also may now receive mercy. He's talking there. He's referring there back to Romans eleven twenty five and 26 when he said, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel is going to be saved. Why? The deliverer is going to come and he's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob and he is going to take away the sins of the nation of Israel. That's a promise, not a possibility. That's a promise by God on what God is going to do. There's going to be a future period of a revival among the Jewish people when all Israel as a nation is going to get saved. And then there is going to be this incredible blessing upon the global church as the Jews as a nation recognize their Savior and commit themselves to Him. So, four sweeping statements about human history. That's what God said. What did God say? God showed us a picture of human history in four acts to show us what His redemptive outworking plans of salvation are. Then Paul concludes verses 30 and 31 with verse 32. He takes that history and he says, let me give you a conclusion regarding that history. Verse 32, what is God's purpose in that summary of human history? For God, for That's connected just to what he has said. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God's purpose in superintending the events of human history in this way is to magnify his mercy. The purpose of God in consigning all to disobedience, meaning the all among the Jews that he was going to save. That's what he's been, how he's been using that throughout the chapter. And the all among the Gentiles that he is going to eventually save, consigning all of them first to disobedience so that he could have mercy on them all is meant to accomplish this great end to cause us to be in shock and awe about the mercy of God. It is to magnify in the fullest degree the mercy of God over our lives. Did you see that that's what all three of these verses is about? He's talking about mercy in all of them. The Gentiles' disobedience was just simply the act of God. Their period of disobedience transformed into God just lavishing mercy upon them. Wow, that's amazing. That's ridiculous. That's awesome. That's shocking. And then the Jews' disobedience by the act of God through his mercy to the Gentiles 
He uses God's, God uses his mercy to the Gentiles based upon their disobedience, the Jews' disobedience, to bring the Gentiles back to mercy. So consigned all to disobedience so that he could have mercy on all so that everyone that is saved could see and magnify his mercy. That's what God said. So the second question is the so what. What did God mean? What did God mean by what God said? What does he want us to understand in view of what he said? What's the big truth in these verses? And what are the supporting truths that undergird and back up and point to the big truth? Here's the big truth. The greatness of God's mercy is a shocking thing when you understand it. It should be. It should cause shock and awe over our lives like it did to Paul in verses 33 to 36 of Romans chapter 11 where he breaks out in spontaneous praise over the indescribable mercy of God and his inscrutable ways with mankind. It just takes him to the end of his words and causes him to well up in the wonder of worship. That's what it should do to us when we understand and magnify the mercy of God. What are the supporting truths that back that up? Let me just give them to you in rapid fire and then we'll close. Number one, all humanity is disobedient to God and deserves not His mercy but His wrath. That should cause us to be shocked and in awe that He would give us His mercy instead of His wrath because we deserve His wrath. How many do? Romans 3, 9 and 10 are, any, are the Jews any better? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. He's been driving that truth home throughout this entire letter. All of us deserve not His mercy, but His wrath. That should support this idea of you being shocked and in awe of his mercy in your life. Number two, God sovereignly uses humanity's disobedience and rebellion to accomplish his purpose. You see it through these verses. Verse 30, it was the Jews' disobedience that God used as the occasion to extend his mercy to the Gentiles. It was the Jews' disobedience leading to the Gentiles' mercy that leads to the Jews' mercy in the end. That's the storyline here. God takes the wickedness of man and he still is sovereign and accomplishes his purposes perfectly. Number three, God has, is, and will absolutely and ultimately accomplish his detailed plan for human history with perfect precision in perfect timing. Did you see that in here? Romans eleven twelve. he talks about the full inclusion of the Jews in the end. That means the full number, the exact number, verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles, the exact number of Gentiles that God has ordained to salvation will be saved. Not one short, not one over, the exact number, the fullness. Verse 25 and 26, the exact timing of the Jewish revival, it will happen Not until, but when the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Here's the point. God has definite, definitive, exact, precise 
plans regarding human history. He's not waiting to see how it's going to unfold. He has decreed how it's going to unfold and he is working every detail of that decree out in perfect completion. Number four, God saves Jews and Gentiles in the same way. In the same way. By bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it's consigned all to disobedience so that he can have mercy on all. What he wants is for all who are saved to see the grandeur of his mercy offered in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the only way God saves is through faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have a plan for the Jews' salvation and a plan for the Gentiles' salvation. It's the same plan. I could give you several verses in Romans chapter 11 that prove that, but verse 20 and 23 do so explicitly if you want to look at them. The Jews are saved in the same way that the Gentiles are saved. It's through faith in Jesus. I say that because some people teach a two-covenant theology and say that God has a different way of saving the Jews than the Gentiles. That is not biblical. Number five, all of God's elect, Jew and Gentile, will be saved and eternally glorified. All of them. All of them. Every single one. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, God's word is not going to fail. God's word is not going to fail. That's the thesis of these three chapters that Paul proves. And then in verse 12, there's going to be a full inclusion of the Jews. And in verse 25, the full number of the Gentiles, Romans 8, everyone God foreknew is going to be predestined and every predestined one will be called and every called one will be justified and every justified one will be glorified. In other words, no one is going to be lost that God has determined to save. Jesus said it like this. I have lost not one that the Father has given me. And then finally, and I'll end it with this, All of this magnifying of the mercy of God and the magnifying of human sin and disobedience and rebellion and the wrath of God that we deserve, all of it is intended to do this. It is intended to humble humanity and kill our pride. It is intended to cause us to be absolutely undone before God, understanding that what we really deserve is his wrath so that what will happen in our hearts is that we will be in shock and awe that he gave us his mercy instead. Oh, the unsearchable riches of the mercies of God. How unscrutable are his ways toward mankind. That's what should happen in our hearts based upon Romans 9, 10, and 11. We shouldn't say, man, I don't like those three chapters. I don't like those statements about election and God having mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardening whom he wants to harden. I want to do my part in this. I want to be the initiator and God responds to me in Romans 9, 10 and 11 are intended to do this it's to kill your pride it's to say to you it's not you in any single part of the equation it is all of God all a part of an eternal plan that he is working at precisely in exact detail and will fulfill it completely and what you can know right now then today is the now what what must I do and it's this take God at his word. Take God at his word. Let me go a little deeper than that. 
get into God's word so that you can take God at his word because his word was given to you so that you would know him and know his promises so that you could base your life upon them. And even though things around you look like they're spinning out of control, you can look back to Romans 9, 10, and 11 and say that God who orchestrates human history for the past 4,000 years and all the way to the end of time in the future is the God who's got my circumstances and what looks impossible to me in his hands and every one of his promises to me is guaranteed because God's word does not fail because God does not fail. Would you please stand? We're going to sing a song here and just want to give you the opportunity though as we sing to come. You can come and pray. God's speaking to your heart. Would you do that? Would you come? Would you respond to God? Whether he's calling you to salvation based upon who Jesus is and what he did to pay for your sins, or he's just calling you to come and deal with some aspect of your heart that you need dealt with. You come and pray. One of the elders will be over here, and other people will come if more need prayed for, but let's pray and then we'll sing as you come, Lord Jesus. I'm asking this for my own heart, but also for the heart of those that are here. I'm asking you to give us this clear revelation to see not only with our intellect, but with the eyes of our heart to see the magnitude of your mercy so that it produces this shock and awe and leaves us undone before you in wonder over your mercy so that we would be purified in greater and greater passion in our worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.